He kōnai e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It's dark. His heart's beating fast, and his mind is racing, hoping, waiting. Inside this rua kumara, a large kumara pit, the musty smell is strong. But most of all, it's dark. It's designed that way to keep the stored food fresh and frost-free. It's sometime around 1820. We're at Motuapuhi Pa, near Turangi in the central North Island. Te Rauparaha, perhaps the most famous of all New Zealand's rangatira, is on the run. And not for the first time. Word had reached him that his enemies were on his tail, so had headed to Rotoaira, where his relative Te Farirangi agreed to hide him. So now he's in a pit with Te Farirangi's wife, Te Rangi Koiaia, sitting on top, hiding Te Rauparaha from the war party and the tohunga. Crouched there, maybe as much as six feet underground, is a life-or-death gamble a chance to evade capture. His life hangs in the balance. Life or death. Life or death. It's this moment that inspires Te Paraha to compose what will become the world's most famous haka. Here's Ngāti Tua leader Kahuropata. He made his way down there and probably somewhat angst at finding himself in that position and only he could sort of come out with the gusto and have a whole haka like Kamate. I thought I was going to die, I thought I was going to die. I live, I live. Kaora, kaora. And really that's essentially the legacy of Ngāti Tua is that we only had a dream and a haka. This time for Te Paraha, it was life, kaora. His enemies moved on, and again, he survived. Te Paraha's instinct for survival, shown as he hid in that kumara pit, was the same instinct that would soon see him lead his people south to Kapiti and then across the Cook Strait. A rise to power during the musket wars, forging alliances and trade and marriage with arriving Europeans an instinct that would eventually see him standing on the Wairau Plains in June 1843 in a showdown with the New Zealand Company. A showdown that would lead to what some would call the first conflict of the New Zealand wars. Others call it a forerunner to those wars, which spread through the far north, Taranaki and Waikato in the following decades. But it was at Wairau where confrontation turned to bloodshed. And then you hear the ringing voice of Arthur Wakefield and he says, Englishman, forward! It's a clash that now looks entirely avoidable. 
sparked by dodgy schemes and even dodgier deeds. Actual deeds, documents and a dodgy cannon. Yeah, and behind it all, a cocktail of greed, ambition, desperation, mana and fundamentally different ideas about land. Māori had no concept of individual land ownership. You know, they're putting a fence around that that's mine, you know. But they had no idea that what William Maxwell was really saying was, I'm going to give you this stuff and then we're going to own all that land. And it came to literal blows at Waido in Marlborough on June 17th, 1843. People have given different names to the events of that day. The Waido Incident, the Waido Affray, the Waido Massacre. Call it what you will, it was a spark, a tipping point. Te Rauparaha was there at the heart of it, trying like so often before to resist, to resolve, to survive. But this time it ended in death. Deaths that cast a shadow over Aotearoa, even today. Kia ora, ko Justine Murray aho, nō Tauranga Moana aho. I'm from Tauranga in the Bay of Plenty. Now, my connection to the story is through my whakapapa, which I am still learning. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather was Tuanui Parata, a Ngāti Toa descendant of Te Rangihirua Pi Toitoi, who was part of the heke from Kāwhia to Kāpiti. That we're going to learn about later. And I'm William Ray. These days I live in Wellington, but I was born in Hamilton, Kirikiridoa, and my family history mostly goes back to England and Ireland, although thankfully not back to the New Zealand Company settlers who had all these troubles in Waito. Mm. The story of Waito isn't just about one event. There's so many factors, ideals, language barriers, greed and power that leads us up to that day and the aftermath. Ida, this is New Zealand Wars, Stories of Wairo, part four of the New Zealand Wars series by RNZ, Aotearoa Media Collective and Great Southern Television, funded by New Zealand On Air. So uh, just to kind of give us a little bit of geography... So this this is, is Dr Peter Mayhana of Rangitane, a senior lecturer in Māori history at Massey University. He's showing a group of school kids around one of the most important spots in New Zealand history. It's probably one of the most... And if you listen to Mr Orchard, he will always tell you no Marlborough student should leave school without knowing about the, the affray or the massacre that went on here. So does, do people kind of know what happened at this place? Yep. So the treaty was signed out there 17 June 1840, and this event here took place 17 June 1843. To kind of understand how things happened here, there's there's a lot of context. You know, Justine, I just love a bit of context. I love context too. Yeah, in this podcast, it's going to be all about that context. Um, Because to really understand what happened there by the Tuamarino stream in Waido, we need to go back about a century earlier and further north to Waikato in the mid-1700s. So by that point, Ngāti Toa had lived on the west coast of Waikato for about four centuries since their tūpuna arrived on the Tainui Canoe. So one day, Werawera, a chief of Ngāti Toa, visits the Ngāti Raukawa Rangatira Koroa Puta at his home in Maunga Tauteri, which is near modern-day Cambridge. Werawera was there looking for a wife. 
and he has his eye on Koroa Puta's daughter, Pare Kohatu. The two are close, and he's kind of feeling down at the prospect of her leaving. Here's Ngāti Toa leader, Tamatiu Terei. Koroa Puta made the remark, he says, well, to Wenawene says, that is, she would give birth to either a monster or a leader. Eventually, Wirawira and Parekohatu did marry and started a family. Somewhere around 1768 to 1780, their fifth child was born and taken to Krawaputa. Here's Ngati Toa leader Kahuropata again. Uh, the old man looked down and saw that he had a special characteristic on his left foot. Uh, which was the sixth toe. And then he knew straight away, oh, this is the tanifa, or the leader that they saw, that he saw in his matakite or in his um, prophecy. And that tanifa uh, was, of course, uh, Taraupuraha. He was uh, raised as a rangatira and, and brought up in the Faretutawa as a war chief eventually. His physical attributes were perhaps underestimated because he was short, uh, maybe around five feet tall, but he made up for that in other ways. They soon saw that he was very adept at leadership, uh, his prowess in the whare his ability, especially in the use of a taiaha. Apparently had a big, booming voice and was able to eventually take over the leadership of Ngāti Toa through the Ngāti Kimi here, Hapu of Ngāti Toa, which his father was the main leader of. Now, there had been long-running disputes between Ngāti Toa and various Waikato iwi, including a very large battle known as Hingakaka, sometime around 1780 to 1810. And this may have been the biggest battle ever fought on New Zealand soil. Here's Sumachu Terei again. It was a huge battle. It wasn't just Ngāti Tor, and it wasn't just the Kafia tribes against it. Uh, people called in, in their, you know, whanonga from other tribes. So Darwa was involved, uh, Ngāpuhi was involved, uh, Tuwhare Tor was involved. It was probably the largest ever battle, pre-European battle of, of Māori. Even though they were related, however, as leadership does, there becomes, you know, challenges between leaders. And so there was, there had always been this ongoing tit for tat. As Tamatsu points out, Te Rauparaha had seen death and bloodshed all his life. So at this point you might be thinking, what does any of this stuff have to do with Wairo down near Blenheim? Well, it's about context, isn't it? Yes, we love context. It's like we said, we love context. Yes. And Te Rauparaha is a key figure in the Wairo dispute, so it's important to understand his background, how he was born and grew to adulthood in a time of intense conflict. He became skilled, not just as a warrior and general, but as a diplomat, building and maintaining alliances. And in between the fighting, Te Rauparaha was also known as a gardener and as a fisherman. So by 1819, Te Rauparaha was about 50 years old, but those constant battles and disputes with Waikato Iwi mean he's concerned for the survival of his people. So he plans a heke, a migration. Te Rauparaha had been on an expedition in 1818, 1819 with Ngāpuhi, 
uh, and then by the time he had got home, the desire uh, to move back down to Te Whanganui Atara, ki Te Upoko Tika, ki Kapiti, Manua Tū, had really grown within him. When Te Rauparaha makes his move south in the early 1820s, this time for good, he has the formidable Te Rangihayata at his side. Now, he's the son of Waitohi, Te Rauparaha's sister. Te Rangihayata towers over his uncle. Here's Dr Lloyd Carpenter, a senior lecturer in Māori studies at Lincoln University, who's also Ngāti Toa. He was a giant, six foot two, possibly six foot three, wide across the shoulders. He had this enormity that when he came in, and everyone talks about he was, he was a rongoa practitioner, he was a carver, he was a healer, he was a bone setter, and he was a rangatira. So you had this man of mana ageing, and you had his nephew, um, Tarangi Hayata, who between the two would have been an incredible presence. So through this point, the 1820s and 30s, there's increasing contact from Europeans, particularly whalers, sealers and missionaries. Um, they're only in small numbers, but they had brought new technologies, most notably including muskets, which had triggered enormous bloodshed. Tarangi Hayata was a person who wouldn't wear Pākehā clothing. Uh, as far as he was concerned, the only good thing that they brought over was guns, tomahawks and all those things that were used to used in warfare. And I suppose uh, uh, he was known to have a bit of a, uh, a liking towards a bit of rum and tobacco, I think was the, one of the new substances they were using back then. And so he fought his way with Ngāti Tōa through all the battles of his people in Kāwhia, all the way down from Kāwhia, and right up until contact uh, with the colonial government. The heke, the migration, would be really hard going. Remember, Ngāti Toa was a relatively small tribe, so they had to improvise. Like during the first leg to Taranaki, known as Teheke Tahutahuahi, or the firelighting migration, Te Raupara instructed fires be lit at night and cloaks be draped across bushes. This gave the impression the group was larger than it really was to help ward off attack. They also had the musket. Every musket had a name. Every musket was carved. Every musket was protected with the firing mechanism, protected with oilskin, finely milled powder. They had carved powder horns. These were taonga. This small, well-armed tribe would continue pushing south. The next leg of the migration was named Teheke Ta Taramoa, or the Campaign of Brambles, named after the prickly bush, a metaphor for the obstacles they faced along the way. And the obstacles weren't just tough terrain, but the fact they were sometimes moving through enemy territory. Ngāti Toa was joined by allies from Tiatiawa, and the party's thought to have been more than 1,500 strong as it travelled 400 kilometres south. 
Battles were fought in Manawatu, Horofenua and Whakapiti Island. All significant stories in their own right. Yeah, we need like a whole other podcast series just to cover that. <laughs> exactly, we do. Uh, but the key point is this. By 1824, Ngāti Tua had become the dominant force in the lower North Island. Uh, Te Rauparaha was later nicknamed Napoleon of the South. He led what's been called a canoe-crafted empire from Kapiti Island. So Kapiti Island, in case you're not familiar, it's just off the coast around Paraparaumu and Waikanae, and it's key to the story. On that scouting trip south before the heke, Te Rauparaha had recognised it as a strong defensive position. He'd also noted the European whaling ships passing through the area. Kapiti was to become both his fortress and a key centre of trade. Through the 1820s and 1830s, Ngāti Toa consolidated its power over neighbouring iwi, in large part through its relationships with the Pākehā world. Yeah, Kapiti was a place where traders and whalers could get pigs, tobacco, flax and even women in return for tobacco, alcohol and, most importantly, guns. From his island fortress, Te Rauparaha took control of the trade in arms and ammo. Kapiti Island historian Chris McLean has described it as, quote, a wild frontier, a meeting point of two cultures without the restraints of laws or government. As many as five whaling stations were set up on the island. As you might imagine, trading relationships between Māori and Pākehā in this era could be difficult. There was a big cultural barrier, big language barrier too, And part of the way this was overcome was through marriages. Marriages were often arranged between ship captains and high-ranking Māori women. That created a whakapapa link which could smooth the path for trading. And there was one marriage which is really central to the Wairo story. The marriage of a whaler called John William Dundas Blinkensop, which is an awesome name, and Te who was a female rangatira of Ngāti Mutunga, who were closely allied to Ngāti Toa at this point in time. Te Rongo, in a series of crazy, tragic coincidences, will be the woman right in the middle of this whole story. Here's Media Pōmari. Uh, I'm a mokopuna of Te Rongo. She uh, had two marriages. Uh, the first marriage was to a whaler and sealer by the name of Captain John Blinkensop. Her second husband uh, after Blinkensop was Te Rangi Haiata. Now I wish we could tell you Te Rongo's full story in detail but there are different versions in different written and oral histories so it's hard to be definitive. Yeah, even her name's a little uncertain, right? Like, yeah. So Ngāti Toa historian and Te Papa curator Matthew Baker, he thinks Te Rongo's name was really Te Rongo Pamamao, while media thinks Te Rongo and Te Rongo Pamamao were actually two different women. Yeah, so just to be clear, uh, these kinds of contested details aren't unusual in 19th century history. Oh, yeah, not at all. And even history which happened way more recently than that can be super controversial. So we'll try to tell her story as best we can, but just be aware. There are at least two conflicting versions at play here. One thing all the histories definitely agree on is that Te Rongo was a rangatira in her own right, and so marrying her must have been a major coup for Blinkensop. 
Yeah, his connection to Te Rungo, who was Ngāti Mutunga through her father, also gave him connections to several high-ranking Ngāti Toa chiefs, including Te Rauparaha himself, as well as to rangatira of other allied tribes. So he basically got all the connections he could want just from this one marriage. Um, but on the other side, this marriage was also a coup for Te Rongo and her whānau, because back in the early 19th century, building connections with Pākehā traders like Blinkensop was literally a matter of life and death. There was another early Pākehā immigrant called Frederick Manning, and he wrote this about his time living with Māori in the 1830s. In those days, the value of a Pākehā to a tribe was enormous. For want of Pākehās to trade with and from whom to procure gunpowder and muskets, many tribes, or sections of tribes, were about this time exterminated, or nearly so, by their more fortunate neighbours who got Pākehās before them and who consequently became armed with muskets first. A Pākehā trader who was therefore of a value, say, about 20 times his own weight in muskets. In 1829, Blinkensop sailed into Wellington Harbour on board the Caroline, and, if you know Wellington, made landfall around what's now Woodward Street and Lambton Quay. It was also the site of Kumu Toto Pa, where Ngāti Mutunga lived. But Te Rongo and Blinkensop soon moved across the Cook Strait. Te Rauparaha had looked south and seen new opportunities for expansion, especially given iwi living at the top of the South Island had yet to get their hands on large numbers of muskets. From 1827 to 1831, Te Rauparaha led a series of waka-borne raids into the top of the South Island, attacking tribes living in that area, including Rangitane, Ngāti Kuia and later Ngaitahu. One reason for this invasion was to gain access to the trade in Ponamu or Greenstone, which was controlled by Ngaitahu, because if there was one thing as valuable to Māori in this period as muskets, it was Ponamu. But that first campaign in 1827 also gave him claim to the flat, fertile plains around the Wairo River, home to Rangitane or Wairo. In Wairo, Ngāti Toa seized thousands upon thousands of acres of rich soil that was to hold such a deadly appeal to so many people, including John Blinkensop. In 1832, Blinkensop's ship was berthed at Te Koko o Kupe, or Cloudy Bay, at the mouth of the Wairo River. He leveraged his marriage with Te Rongo to make deals with the ranking rangatira in the district, including Te Rauparaha. He wanted rights to water and timber. Here's Ngāti Toa leader Kahuropata. My understanding is, is that, yeah, there was, there was a relationship there, obviously uh, one of trust initially in terms, from, uh, in terms of our iwi and our people. So this next bit's going to get a bit complicated. Just hang with us for a bit. An 18-pounder cannon from Sydney had been traded with Te Rauparaha's brother, Nohurua, in exchange for permission to set up a whaling station at Kākāpō Bay, east of modern-day Picton. According to some versions of the story, this deal was made by the famous whaler and sealer Jackie Gard. Others say it was Blinkensop himself who made the deal. 
Either way, Blinkensop is then supposed to have stolen the cannon from Nohorua and used it in a second deal with Te Rauparaha and others for access to land in Wairau. This cannon, by the way, today it sits outside the Marlborough District Council. But the fact this cannon was seemingly stolen wasn't the only dodgy part of this deal. So, what was the really dodgy bit? Well, the Māori who signed this deed thought they were just granting Blinkensop the right to live in the area, chop down some trees, collect water, that sort of thing. As far as my understanding was, it was like a rental. That there were some people, he was told that there's some people here going to use your land and if you sign this paper you'll get this, this and that. So obviously there is some understandings lost in translation there, but I think Blinkensop had worked out that the Wairo was a place of huge resource and fertility in terms of the land. Uh, Ngāti Tōr had recognised that from our initial arrival, and in fact it was like a, considered a personal pantry. But Blinkensop seems to have pulled a fast one here because it appears that none of the rangatira who signed this document could read in English. Yes, remember the language barriers? Yeah. And the thing is, this document didn't just say that Blinkensop was getting some kind of rental agreement with permission to cut down trees and take some water. The deed said that he was getting ownership of the entire Wairo Plain. That piece of... That's some... 26,000 acres of land. The head of Cloudy Bay in the island of New Zealand, aforesaid comprising the whole of the Wairau Plains, bounded on the south by a range of mountains extending in a westerly direction. For a deceptive deed, it's pretty detailed. All the ways, the paths, passages, waters, watercourses, trees, woods, underwoods, fences, common... Eventually, though, this whole deception, it was revealed. Te Rauparaha, he got a flax trader in Kapiti to read the document for him, and when he heard what it said, he was furious. Yeah, I don't blame him. Um, he rips up his copy of the deed and throws it away. Some say he burned it. But by then, Blinkensop has already sailed for Sydney with his copy of the document. Yeah, he's out of there. Uh, then, new twist, Blinkensop drowns in the Murray River, although the impact of his dodgy deed would live on long after him. Yeah, don't forget about that deed. It's going to be important later. So anyway, after Blinkensop dies, Te Rongo remarries, although it's a little bit uncertain who she gets married to. Yeah, this is fascinating. So in one account, she marries a man called Te Whaiti. Now, he was the first cousin to Te Rangi Hayata, who's Te Rauparaha's nephew. After just a few years of marriage, Te Whaiti would die, and Te Rongo would be taken in by Te Rangi Hayata. Now, they're usually described as husband and wife, but it was probably more like Te Rangi Hayata had a natural responsibility to look after Te Rongo after the death of his cousin. But like we said... Slightly different versions of this history, and in another account, Te Whaiti doesn't marry Te Rongo. Instead, he marries Te Rongo Pamamao. Remember, there's conflicting histories about whether Te Rongo and Te Rongo Pamamao are two different women or the same person. We don't know for sure. Mm, so both versions of the history agree that Te Rongo did eventually marry Te Rangi Hayata. It's just a little uncertain whether she married Te Whaiti first. 
Now, you might wonder why we're mentioning Te Whaiti. Well, just like Te Rongo, Te Whaiti had acted as a conduit between the Pākehā and Māori worlds. Although in his case, he'd done so on the other side of the globe. Te Whaiti had travelled to England in the 1830s and for a couple of years he lived with a guy who was extremely famous. Maybe it would be better to say extremely infamous in the history of New Zealand. Edward Gibbon Wakefield, the founder and driving force behind the New Zealand company. So, what the hell was the New Zealand company, I hear you ask? Well, let's introduce them. Warm weather, a calm harbour, lots of plant life. The three shiploads of settlers and surveyors who arrived at Whakatū at the top of the South Island in late 1841 had a pretty good first impression of the place they intended to call home. Arthur Thompson, in his 1859 book The Story of New Zealand, declared the new arrivals were, quote, delighted with the calm atmosphere of Nelson, which is what they called Whakatū. But the man leading them, Captain Arthur Wakefield, he was anxious. As a new principal agent for the New Zealand Company, he'd left Britain with fewer settlers than hoped. And upon arrival, the new New Zealand governor, William Hobson, told him he couldn't build his town down in Canterbury where he'd wanted to. And perhaps most worryingly of all, Whakatū backed onto mountains, and it lacked the flat farming land which had been promised to the settlers. Not just promised, that actually been sold the land back in Britain. Yeah, but there was one big chunky problem. The New Zealand company didn't own the land they were selling. But we'll get to that in just a second. So the whole idea of the New Zealand Company had been dreamed up by Arthur's older brother, Edward Gibbon Wakefield. Here's Philip Temple, author of a biography of the Wakefield family. It's called A Sort of Conscience, The Wakefields. He was quite a charismatic figure. A lot of people were quite bewitched by his um, ideas and his energy and that sort of thing. And I, I, I suggested from certain bits of evidence that he might have been bipolar. Edward Gibbon Wakefield had political ambitions, but had also experienced personal tragedy. Edward Gibbon lost his first wife uh, in childbirth when Jerningham was born, and it was just before she was due to inherit all this money, which would have enabled him to become a member of parliament, because in those days you needed a lot of cash. Six years after the death of Eliza, his first wife, Edward's political dreams were still the driving force in his life. So he and his brother William hatched a plan to get hold of that cash. Abduct a 15-year-old heiress called Alan Turner, marry her and use her family's money to get into Parliament. He was desperate to to actually participate in political life. So he thought, I've got to find somebody else to get the money. And he eloped or uh, abducted um, Alan Turner and William helped him. So they were uh, complicit in this scheme to pick up this 15-year-old girl from school. In those days, in Scotland, uh, Gretna Green, you could could marry at the age of 12. Uh, You just had to say, yes, I do. So I find the craziest part of the story that, like, 
Edward Gibbon and William's plan really hinged on the idea that this 15-year-old girl's family would just go along with this. <laughs> that, like, after they'd abducted and married their daughter, they're just going to go, sweet, okay, well, here's a whole bunch of money and you can go to Parliament. It's just nuts. I know. It's, it's just this whole thing about dowry, isn't it? She comes with a dowry to help fund his political aspirations. Yeah. Um, well, the law didn't think so either, and both William and Edward Gibbon Wakefield were charged with abduction. It was the biggest scandal Britain had seen in years. Here's a reenactment of the trial from RNZ's Spectrum programme in 1975. The defendants stand charged before you with conspiring together to carry away a young female under the age of 16 from the custody of her parents and instructors and afterwards to marry her to one of the offenders. That is the crime for which the defendants are now... Okay, we don't have time to go through this whole trial, but long story short, the Wakefield brothers are both convicted and sentenced to two years in the slammer. But then, while he's in jail, Edward Gibbon Wakefield is just horrified by what he sees. You know, petty criminals shipped off to penal colonies, people being hanged for low-level crimes. So he reads really widely... And he comes up with an idea to fix all this, some kind of reform. Now, here's historian Vincent O'Malley, author of The New Zealand Wars, Ngā Pakanga o Aotearoa. During his his time in jail, he develops this idea about what he calls systematic colonisation, and that's based on his theory of a sufficient price, which is that land should be sold to intending migrants at a price that was sufficient to short to ensure that only um, the richer members of society could afford to buy those lands, while it would also subsidise the the migration of the labouring classes. So it was intended to kind of replicate an idealised version of the English class system in a way. Ah yes, a new Britannia. Edward Gibbon writes it all up in an article entitled Cure and Prevention of Pauperism by Means of Systematic Colonisation. And a few rich and influential people who read this article thought it sounded just like a great idea. So Edward Gibbon Wakefield becomes the head of a new organisation, the New Zealand Company. So the New Zealand Company is a really critical part of the story. It's founded in 1839, um, following an early New Zealand Association in 1837. Um, And it is... This is really colonisation by a private company. They have a, uh, they gain a, a monopoly right to acquire large areas of land for Māori and sell, on sell it to settlers. The New Zealand company set their sights on a country nearly 12,000 miles away. Cue the propaganda. There's brochures, a prospectus, even a larger-than-life artwork you can step into to really feel like you're there. Here's a snippet of one of their ads. Emigration to New Zealand. The directors of the New Zealand Land Company hereby give notice that they're ready to receive applications for a free passage to their first and principal settlement. The company's emigrant ships will sail from England early in September next. Further particulars and printed forms of application may be obtained at the company's offices by order of the directors. Number one, Adelphi. The New Zealand Company uses everything in its power to entice buyers. Here's senior lecturer Lloyd Carpenter again. They, they would have town hall meetings where 
the media of the day, which was these beautifully produced artworks showing, you know, come on in, the natives are friendly and the weather's good and you can grow bananas in the Hutt Valley and things like that. Um, that was said, by the way. And they would basically come round and they would persuade people. They had too many people. It was this idea, we have too many mouths to feed in England, so let's ship them overseas. And so the same principle applied to providing settlers for Canada, for Australia, parts of America and the Caribbean. But New Zealand, you had the chance to provide settlers and make money off them. So as far as the aristocracy was concerned, this was win-win. We get rid of these annoying mouths to feed and we can make some coin along the way because we come along, we persuade the uneducated natives of New Zealand to part with their land and then we will farm it, we will make money out of it and then we'll sell it to the new settlers and all along the way we clip the ticket and make profit. So you can kind of think of the New Zealand company as two distinct groups. There's the rich folks who are back in England buying up the land and then there's the working class folks who are being sent out to work on that land. But hang on, there's a big problem here. The New Zealand company are selling land they don't own. Uh, They haven't even visited the land they are trying to sell. Although they have talked to a few people who know these islands better than they do, including Te Whaiti, the guy who may or may not have married Te Rongo after the death of her first husband, John Blenkinsop. As we mentioned, Te Whaiti had lived with Edward Gibbon Wakefield for a couple of years. But either the company just completely ignored what Defaiti had to say or something got seriously lost in translation because the company said a lot of stuff about New Zealand which was totally bananas. Literally bananas. Like Lloyd said, at one point the company claimed bananas were growing all through the Hutt Valley. I don't know if you've been to the Hutt Valley recently. Not that many bananas. Tifaiti was a real draw card for Edward Gibbon Wakefield to help promote his colonisation scheme. He was quoted, maybe accurately, maybe inaccurately, as saying Māori would welcome the New Zealand company's project. He's supposed to have said, I like it. I do not know what my countrymen would like. I think they would like it too, because they like even the bad people now. I think they would like the gentlemen. And in the context of his time, that's not a crazy thing for Te Whaiti to have said. Like we mentioned before, building relations with Pākehā was extremely important for Māori. And Te Whaiti couldn't have known the level of chaos the so-called gentlemen of the New Zealand company were about to unleash. But some in Britain did see what was coming. Senior officials in the colonial office were convinced the New Zealand company's scheme would end in tears, not just for the settlers, but also for Māori. One even went so far as to say it would inevitably lead to the, quote, conquest and extermination of the present inhabitants. Which is in part why the Brits sent William Hobson over to Aotearoa in early 1840 to sign the Treaty of Waitangi. The treaty included a provision to block unscrupulous speculators like the New Zealand company, buying Māori land. Hobson's orders from London were to bring law and order to the country and buy land from Māori by, quote, fair and equal contracts, crack down on the dodgy deals. Here's senior lecturer Lloyd Carpenter again. The New Zealand company regarded the treaty as an annoying encumbrance at best and something to be ignored. They were selling land, for example, in the Hutt Valley, that they didn't own, got here and hurriedly came up with, 
deals with Ngāti Toa, with Te Atiawa and uh, other Wellington iwi that supposedly gained them the right to settle. So the New Zealand company's approach was simple, buy up as much land as they could before the Treaty of Waitangi was signed. In fact, in just the few months before the signing of the treaty, Edward Gibbon's brother, William Wakefield, he bought up about a third of the land in New Zealand. It's an area of land about the size of Ireland. Or at least he thinks he buys this land. Here's Vincent O'Malley. Yeah, so William Wakefield is dispatched on the Tory soon after the company is founded. He arrives, identifies the Cook Strait region as, as one that, that the New Zealand company would be interested in acquiring, and he enters into a number of deals. The biggest deal is called the Kapiti Deed, which covers the entire Lower North Island and the top of the South Island. The deed is signed in October 1839 um, between William Wakefield, Tarepaha, and other Rangatira of Ngāti Toa. Um, and it purports to convey to the New Zealand Company all of the, all of the lands between northern Taranaki down to North Canterbury, basically, around 20 million acres, one third of the country. In return, Ngāti Toa receive guns, ammunition, various tools and utensils. But these deeds meant something else to Māori. Well, the notion of a, of a land sale is foreign to Māori tikanga. The way that Māori were more likely to understand the transaction is that they are forging a relationship with the newcomers, agreeing to share the lands and resources on them between the two parties. And so in that sense, uh, not a permanent alienation of the lands. And that's a, that's a different way of thinking about the, the transaction. It's not a one-off real estate deal. It's about the relationships between the parties. So into this mess, we now throw several thousand New Zealand company settlers who have no idea what they're walking into. On the 1st of February 1842, the first ship, Fifesha, arrived carrying 159 colonists. And within 18 months, another 18 ships would follow. Here's Lloyd Carpenter again. So when they arrived there, they don't have a lot of cash and they also don't have opportunity to work because this is a, it's a, a basic trading society without anything to trade. Local Māori are very kind in supporting them, showing them how to plant mara. Um, there's this idea that it was a, a happy little settlement. It wasn't. It was founded on tragedy. The first ship arrived with the men on board, and they were the ones that put up the prefabricated housing in that. The second ship was the Lloyds, and that arrived, and with stories of absolute horror, 65 children died on it. Um, that meant out of every family that was in the new settlement of Nelson, there was either someone who lost a child or someone who knew someone who lost a child. Um, the women were assaulted, which in the Victorian parlance was meant everything from sexual assault to rape. And they arrived, they were damaged. And they arrive and instead of finding this wonderful place that they can start a new life that was different to the life they faced in England, they faced hardship, in some cases close to starvation, and almost a, a, a dream that hadn't even come close to coming true. So you've got thousands of frustrated, struggling settlers in Nelson, 
and alongside them you had increasingly annoyed Māori having to adapt to life alongside a rapidly growing Pākehā population. As you might expect, there were cultural clashes on many fronts, including the law. The Māori and British approaches to justice were dramatically different, and quite how different they were was brought to light by the murder of a Ngāti Tua woman, Rangihaua Kuika, and her 18-month-old baby in December 1842. The case was heard in April 1843. Here's Media Pōmari again. A pāha, Richard Cook, who was a trader from the Waido, and while everybody knew that this person, Richard Cook, was responsible uh, for Kweka's death, including Richard Cook's wife. She knew he was guilty, uh, but was prevented from giving evidence by virtue of the fact that uh, they were married and uh, wives were, were prevented from giving evidence against their husbands under English law. So the case completely fell apart and Richard Cook was exonerated. He was allowed to leave the country freely with no repercussions. Here's Vincent O'Malley. The, the local missionary Samuel Arnside convinces uh, Ngāti Toa not to exact utu on Richard Cook but to let the rule of law apply and, and justice will be done for all. The case against Cook collapses because the Crown hasn't bothered to gather evidence from, from any of the many other Māori who could have testified that Cook was indeed um, the person who had brutally raped and murdered this woman. He walks free. Ngāti Toa were angry at this British system of law, one that delivered no justice in their eyes. And they would not forget. In the next episode... Greed and a grab for power ends in tragedy at Waido. We'll dive deep into the decisions which led to the violence, the events of that morning, and the aftermath. Tēnā tātou, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for others to find this and other awesome podcasts on the RNZ website. This series also includes New Zealand Wars, stories of Waitara, stories of Tainui, and stories of Rua Pekapeka. Aida, and the video series is amazing. You can find it at rnz.co.nz forward slash Lloyd Carpenter, Vincent O'Malley, Media Pōmare, Kahuropata, and Sumatu today were interviewed by Mihinarangi Forbes. Nā mihi kia koutou. Also thanks to David Green, Matthew Baker, Philip Temple, Peter Mayhana and Liana MacDonald for helping us out with the research for this podcast. Nā mihi mai o hakinga kai kōrero voice talent from Kehu Butler, Ngairo Eriwera, Duncan Smith, Grant Walker, Simon Dickinson and Tim Watkin. New Zealand Wars, The Stories of Wairo is a co-production by RNZ, Aotearoa Media Collective and Great Southern Television. This podcast episode is written and produced by me, Justine Murray. And by me, William Ray, and by our executive producer, Tim Watkin. Sound engineers, Phil Benge and William Saunders. This series was made with the support of New Zealand On Air. Ere mihi, kia koutou katoa.